0: We're in John's Gospel and tonight upon what is perhaps the most famous verse of scripture in all of the scriptures John 3:16 and we would be remiss if we didn't make sure before we left tonight we really have full understanding of this most famous and powerful verse John 3:16 Here's how it begins for God he's the starting point not only of this verse of scripture but he's the starting point of the universe God is. He exists. And there's an evidentiary basis for his existence. Much could be said about it, but let me just make a brief statement. The complex design of the world in which we live posits a designer. If you believe we just got here through a spontaneous coming together of particles in the ocean eons ago you have much more faith than is to be required just to believe in a master designer behind the design, which is called the universe, which is called life. And yet there are oftentimes intelligent people who call themselves atheists, those who doubt the very existence of God, which leads us to ask the question, how could an otherwise intelligent person be an atheist in the face of such evidence to the contrary. I like what someone said about it. An atheist can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a cop. Uh, They don't want to. Uh, There's something about recognizing the existence of God which affects the whole course of our lives. If he is, then we subordinate ourselves to him We yield to him, and many of us simply don't want to do that. So the verse begins, for God, so loved. Uh, When I read John 3.16 and that particular phrase, so loved, I immediately conclude it's a reference to the extent of God's love. This God who is loved in such a great extent that, and though God's love is extensive for sure, and great and undeserved, I really don't think that's what it means as I've studied this. I have a different point of view on this. Tell me if you like it and if it fits, and if it doesn't, just leave it behind. I think it really means for God loved in the same sense God loved even so in light of his previous manifestation of love. I'll tell you how I get that. Uh, John 3.16 is in a context, and because it's such a powerful verse, we often remove it from the context. But the immediate context, it's pretty easy, are the prior two verses, John 3.14 and 15. We reviewed those somewhat last week. And the Lord Jesus himself refers to those two verses. It says, as Moses lifted up, this is John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness." Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. I mentioned last week that that's a a reference to a very extraordinary incident that took place centuries even before the time of the Lord in John 3 and it's recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21, and here's what happened. Almighty God heard Israel's cry for help and delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. It was undeserved, but he's very gracious and merciful, and so he liberated Israel, and he had them in the course of making their way to a place of promise. But along the way, very, very hard-hearted Israel, stiff-necked Israel as The Bible refers to that particular people group, moaned and grumbled, and they said things to God through Moses like, why did you bring us out here so as to die in the wilderness? We could have died much more comfortably back in Egypt. Bring us back there, essentially is what they said. This was so disturbing and offensive to Almighty God, who graciously sought to deliver Israel that he sent upon Israel as a result of her sin. Uh, what Numbers 21 describes as fiery serpents. Fiery, I think, in the sense that their bite was poisonous and caused you to be inflamed with the uh, effects and toxicity of the bite. Well, Israel uh, saw this to be logically connected to their sin and repented of it. They confessed, which means to agree with God, and they repented. They wanted to change their direction and be more faithful to God. So they cried out to God through Moses, the intermediary, for deliverance and forgiveness. Numbers 21 tells us that a merciful God heard their cry once again and said to them through Moses, uh, get a pole and impale upon it a brazen serpent, a snake, a bronze snake. Put it on a pole, stick it on a hill, let it be lifted up. And when those who have been bitten gaze upon this impaled snake, this brazen this bronze snake on a pole, when they look upon it with eyes of faith, uh, then they will not die from the bites. That's what they'll do. And this, in fact, happened in Numbers chapter uh, 21. And hot on the heels of that, verses 14 and 15, now we get what's said in the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world. I think it's more accurately translated in this way, even so, God loved the world. As God manifested his love to sinful ancient Israel, as recorded in Numbers 21, even so, God loves the entirety of the world. All of humanity, every people group, the manifestation of his love, as recorded in Numbers 21 is not limited to sinful Israel, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And even as God manifested his love there with an uplifted serpent on a pole, which provided a remedy for sin, even so, God so loved a second time, this time, the world that he gave. I think that's what's kind of in view here. For God so loved the world. Are you aware of the fact that our English word for love is matched by at least three Greek words for love? You know about this? For instance, one oft-used Greek word for love in the Bible is the word eros. It's not a dirty word, although some have made it that way. We get the word erotica from it. But it, it means strong attraction to the object of one's love. But it, it would be a romantic kind of love. That's eros. That's not the word used here. There's another word for love in Greek, and it's the word phileo. We get the word Philadelphia, city of brotherly love from it. Phileo is not the love of uh, attraction. It's more like the love of affection. That's when you have a close friend, your interests are shared, and you like one another. That's phileo. That's not the word used for love here. And a third word for love, I bet you know this, is the word agape. And that's a manifestation of love which has nothing to do with an attitude of one's mind or heart. It has to do with a demonstrated act of one's will. That's the word used here. For God so agaped the world. You know what that means? Uh, the world didn't have anything inherently attractive about it. The, the humanity that makes up the world, we're on the run from God. It's a sinful humanity consisting of ones like you and I. We have rebelled against God and abandoned him, and yet based on his agape love, he's not abandoned us. This is the kind of love which studies the one you will to love and identifies that one's primary need and seeks to meet it in spite of that one. That's what God did for us. He saw our fundamental need, and it's not that the uh, global warning, warming is about to destroy us. And it wasn't anything like that, nothing to do with the climate. It had to do with our internal environment, which put us at odds with God. Almighty God saw our separation from him, the giver of life, and in an act of love uh, determined to provide a remedy for it. That's the kind of love in view here in John 3, 16. Folks, don't think for one minute God liked us. Oh, no, no, no. It's not for love. Uh, There's nothing about sin or the sinner that God likes. This surely wasn't eros kind of love. There was, there was nothing, not, nothing attractive about us with reference to a holy God. In fact, God's love is simply a manifestation of his will. He chose to his, affix his love upon us by noticing what our primary need is and he sought to meet it. He sought to provide a remedy for our sin problem. How did he do it? Well, the verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He expressed his love By giving, not merely by speaking. The so-called love songs of the day are high on verbal expressions of love. Maybe low on follow-through. God's the other way around. Talk, in this sense, is cheap. And so to demonstrate his love in an active way to us, I love this verb, he gave. For God's love consisted not just in professing his love, but in demonstrating it by giving. His love is about seeing our need and choosing to give us a remedy so as to resolve it. And what did he do? Well, he gave, which begs the question, how did he give? And to whom did he give? Do you realize an unbeliever who's coming to hear of John 3.16 for the first time would have those questions which are really not fully answered by this verse? I know some people say all you need is John 3.16 to lead someone to the Lord, but it occurred to me it's not enough. John 3.16 doesn't say us, tell us much about the giving of God. How did he give, and to whom did he give, and what's it all about? You know what it takes for John 3.16 to really take root in, in someone's life? It takes you or me. It takes a believer buddying up next to an unbeliever and speaking to them about the giving, merciful love of Almighty God. It takes a believer explaining God's inexpressible gift. I, 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 have, I have formulated in my own mind a, a little paragraph that I memorized uh, to help me along the way to broach this kind of subject with people I may run into. It's a mere 40 words, if I can remember it. It goes something like this. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. John 3.16 is stocked full of meaning, but Almighty God has given folk like you and I the privilege of lifting the meaning from the text answering questions an unbeliever might have so that they can understand the depth of the love of of Almighty God. I would like to encourage you to memorize those 40 words and then ask God to give you an opportunity to broach the subject with someone and share this with them. I've shared with you uh, over the course of time the opportunities I've had, and many of you on Wednesday nights have uh, been so good to share your experience. I, I, I want to tell you, I have found thus far... Uh, tremendous receptivity. Let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me and they think part B is going to be, I won the lottery. No, it's not that. It's better than that. It's a starting point. And with it, you can share the totality of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one of a kind, begotten Son, Folks, the best that almighty God had to give, he done gave. He withheld not even his best. God's son, Jesus is his name, was given. For what purpose? It's simple, to suffer and to die in our place. And do you realize in order to do this, he had to condescend, he had to come down. He's transcendent, preexistent deity lives in the heavenly places with the Father from before time. He, being God, has no beginning. Jesus has no beginning nor, nor any end. In order for us to benefit from the remedy, that is, he dying in our place, he had to become enfleshed. He had to lower himself. He had to decrease. He had to leave his heavenly privileges and come to earth. He had to stoop so that we could access him. Don't you find this ironic? because most of us are exerting the better part of our lives and energy in propping ourselves up so as to persuade ourselves, we in our own goodness and virtue can be elevated to the level of Almighty God. So this world is bent on lauding human potential, inherent value, and all the rest. But try as we may, the scriptures say, for all have sinned and fall short. But for the grace of God, we'd never be able, even in the quintessence of our virtue, we'd never be able to make ourselves worthy of reaching to God in the heavenly places. And therefore, he became enfleshed so as to reach down to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But did you ever wonder was that really necessary? Couldn't God just take a look at us if he's so good and gracious? Couldn't he just say, hey, all is forgiven? Why did not He just pronounce forgiveness upon us? I mean, we do that sometimes with one another. You know, somebody offends you, and you say, I forget it. It's forgiven. Let it go. I mean, why, did, why didn't God just do something like that? I'll tell you why. If God just did that without requiring a penalty for our transgressions, Do you realize he would not be God? (laughs) Because God can do nothing contrary to who he is. God is just. He's a God who requires, therefore, justice. If he waived the just requirement of a penalty for our sin, he would cease being God. So there must be a penalty, but don't get nervous. Uh, God is perfectly just for sure, but he's not just perfectly just, he's also perfectly loving. And so what he did to satisfy his justice was to make sure the penalty due us was placed on the shoulders of another, his son. And in Jesus dying in our place, God's justice and God's love, both were satisfied. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever or whosoever. What a great word. It is the grandest inclusive word in all the Bible, whoever. In this day and age when we're very concerned about being left out, not getting our piece of the pie as Americans, not being treated fairly, being prejudicially discriminated against, and these are legitimate concerns, isn't this a refreshing word? This is a whoever, nobody excluded word, if you think about it. I used to be a missionary with a group called the Navigators a million years ago in Germany. And the story was told by uh, fellow Navigators. It was a Navigator family, and uh, they were uh, Scripture memory was a big deal for us in the Navigator ministry. And we got our kids started doing that early on. And this couple had their three-year-old around the dinner table uh, memorizing Scripture. In this case, the three-year-old had just succeeded in memorizing John 3.16. Well, then the navigators, we focused on ministering in those days to military folks. And they invited a sailor who was stationed nearby over to their home to have dinner with the family. They sat around the table, and after eating physical food, they decided to nourish one another by uh, reciting their memorized spiritual food verses of Scripture. Got time for the three-year-old to share John 3.16. And the three-year-old was doing pretty good until he got to the word whosoever. That's a rough one for a three-year-old to pronounce. He had to really work on it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who, whoso, who, so, and he just, he was focused on it. He couldn't articulate the word that whoso, whosoever. Who's so and the young sailor realized for the first time, oh my goodness, that includes me. That word is me. And there at the dinner table, <laughs> he accepted, that sailor accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and, sailed away on into eternity with the Lord. A three-year-old <laughs> who couldn't pronounce this word and therefore labored overdoing it uh, by God's grace so impressed this inclusive word on this otherwise excluded sailor that the sailor said, this applies, this applies to me as well, that whosoever, this is what it says, believes in him. Do you think believing in Jesus is different than believing about Jesus? Is there a difference there? I mean, good night. The whole world seems to believe something about Jesus. That's got to be different than believing in Jesus. So, uh, before the service, I was talking to my friend and brother, John, right there. That's John. And John is... uh, His ministry here is to be on a team of people who babysit guys like me. So that's what he is. He's a babysitter. And uh, John, come here for a second, would you please? And uh, so uh, I'll tell you some stuff about John. His wife is one of the ladies on the Africa Missions team right now, Deborah. And uh, I I had the chance to marry uh, John uh, to his wife. And uh, (laughs) I'm going to be clear about that. We're not each other's type at all. And I married them. Listen to this. Tell me this isn't hot stuff. Where did I marry you?
1: On the Mount of Beatitudes over in the Sea of Galilee in Israel. How about
0: that? Mount of Beatitudes in Israel. That's what we did. We were there on kind of a missions trip. And I married them right over there. But anyway, John was telling me, uh, that's a man sold out for the Lord. Don't want to cause you to stumble, brother, but you are. And he looks for opportunities to to minister to people, wherever he is, tell me about a little something. And I, I love this story because it's an illustration of what I'm trying to get at, the difference between believing in Jesus and believing about Jesus. Could you share what happened to you the other day?
1: Yes, sir. I was at the gym the other day, and uh, I always look for opportunities. But this particular night, I wasn't looking for an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. And I was over at a certain part of the gym, and there was a young man there that went to school with my boys I had seen in a couple of years and I didn't recognize him, I went over and said hello, and went back to do what I was doing, and then I went back again, because the Holy Spirit said, go talk to him. Uh, Long story short, found out that he had some rough roads that he went down, and he also had been in prison and things of that nature, was looking for a job, and so I just started talking to him about uh, Jesus, and I said, it looks like doing the the world's way and your way is not working out for you. I said, won't you try it God's way? And he said, well, I've done the Jesus thing, and that's what Stuart's talking about, he says, now, you you know Jesus, but do, or do you believe in Jesus? Are you born again? Have you ever done that where you put both feet in with Jesus and not one in the world and believing in God? So he said, Well, I don't know. I said, That's what you need to do. So we talked a little bit more to make a long story short. And then a, another big guy, a friend of mine who's six foot eight, about 300 pounds, played uh, semi pro professional football. He's a Christian. He came over and heard the conversation and, and joined in and started adding his. Uh, testimony in history of where he came to know Jesus Christ and uh, so we prayed for him there in the middle of the gym and we left him saying look you know God's a God of second and third chances he'll forgive your sins today yesterday and forever so give him a try and then uh, I said what you do with this, going on our God okay and we did more than that but that was an opportunity that presented itself I wasn't expecting thank
0: you John God, God, God bless, bless you brother thank you. thank
1: you brother God bless you
0: Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. John was working out, but he is an ambassador for Christ, even in the gym. You know, whenever I get around John, I've, I find this uh, unconscious impulse to kind of go, it's kind of like suck in my stomach a little bit and walk around like that. And it's just uncomfortable, but that's what happens, the effect he has. But, but a brilliant illustration, this young struggling guy who John was ministering to Uh, essentially said, been there, done that. I've heard of Jesus. I've tried the Jesus thing. Didn't work. John was challenging the thinking. So that's the difference between believing in Jesus and simply believing some things about him. To believe in Jesus is to place one's confident trust in him For forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven. That's what it means. It means to lean into Jesus and his merits, forsaking any confidence in your own. You've heard this illustration before. Let's use it since you're all seated. You're seated on chairs. Uh, You might have come into the room and you notice things about the chair. If I were to say to you, do you believe that the chair is here? Of course, I see the chair. Do you know about the chair? I know about the chair you understand the purpose of a chair? Absolutely. I know, I know all, all that kind of stuff. But to believe in the chair is actually to put your weight on it, thus showing confidence in the chair's capacity to carry you. That's what it is to believe in Jesus. It's more than just describing his existence and that he lived, and some people refer to him as the Savior, and, yeah, he's the theme of Christmas and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I got all that. But that's not enough. John says here... One has to believe in him, putting confident trust in him as the only means by which our eternity can be guaranteed and our sins can be forgiven. In other words, you stop depending on your alleged goodnesses and on your good deeds, on any inherent merit you have. You forsake all that knowing it doesn't exist, and you say, I am confidently trusting, resting in the finished work of this Jesus who suffered and died on a cross in my place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him, you know what God is doing? He's offering this for whosoever, but it only is of value to those who believe in Jesus. Though whosoever is an inclusive word, that is to say the message, the remedy is offered for everyone. It doesn't really have benefit except for those who make the choice of accepting it. And so God gives us free will. We can accept or reject this magnificent remedy the Father provided through the substitutionary death of the Son. And with the freedom of choosing to reject Jesus, the Father allows us the freedom of living Forever with the consequences thereof. And here's the consequence. Perishing. That's what it says. Some people think that means you die. Sin all you want. Get all the gusto. If it feels good, do it. Because all that's going to happen is when you come to the end of your life here, you just die. You cease to exist and that's it. Let me tell you something. That's not so bad. You just die. End of story. But that's not what the word means. You know what it means to perish? It doesn't mean to ceaselessly, uh, uh, to cease to exist. It means to live on eternally in sheer and utter ruin. Folks, if eternal life has an eternal never-ending quality to it, so does eternal death. It has a never-ending quality to it. So it is to live forever. Listen with unmet needs. Are you hungry? Anybody hungry? Yeah, me too. Well, all we got to do is wait another two hours till we finish and we'll get something to eat. Are you bored? Are you disgusted? You know, whatever the deal. Just wait a little bit. Those needs are going to be met. What if you had those fundamental human needs that remained very much there and unsatisfied throughout eternity? That's what it means to perish. It means to be constantly dying in the experience of unsatisfied needs. Why? Because you chose to reject the God who is there to satisfy all our needs. This is a terrible, terrible consequence, a terrible outcome. To perish is not to cease to exist. It's to exist forever in sheer and utter ruin It's to exist forever in the absence of all that makes life meaningful because you have to be in the presence of God who gives meaning to life in order for it to be meaningful. To perish means to be entirely apart from the life of God because we have chosen to reject the remedy for our sin and the mediator between God and man. Hell, folks, hell is a place. Inhabited by people who have become utterly and eternally ruined. That's a consequence for rejecting God's remedy for sin. But is there an alternative? Sure, sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And I love this next three-letter word. But, but means there's an alternative. But what? but have eternal life. Do you have a translation that says everlasting life? Anyone have that? Yeah, that's really a good one. Everlasting life really calls our attention to the never-endingness of it all. But there's much more to eternal life than its duration. It's not just quantity of years, it's quality of life. Do you know if you've accepted Jesus now, Your eternal life has begun. For eternal life is the life lived by the eternal God. (laughs) What God's experience is becomes ours. Peace and joy and goodness and kindness and self-control. All of those things. Don't make eternal life just mean I live forever. Do you know that's a terrible thing for some people? Do you want to live forever in in certain states? Does the the person who's struggling with a debilitating physical illness want to live forever? Does the poor person want to live forever in poverty? Does the unemployed person want to forever be unemployed? No, no, no. So, So eternal life is much better than just its longevity. It's a quality of life. Eternal life is the life of the eternal God bequeathed to us and experienced by us. That's what the alternative to perishing is. Folks, I want to ask you a question. Do you realize that the initiative in salvation lies with God? For God, that's how it started, right there. Do you realize that the initiative in salvation has been taken by God? You know what that means? You and I don't have to beg him to forgive us. (laughs) We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to beseech him and petition him and cry out to him and shriek in horror at the possibility that he'll decline our request. Do you realize God has already taken the initiative in the matter of salvation? And when we cry out to him, maybe, wrongly, I think he says, (laughs) forgiveness is my idea. Don't you know John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that He gave the remedy for sin. And do you realize this in the incident in Numbers twenty one, which we previously alluded to, the uplifted servant? Do you realize that that remedy for sin was sufficient for absolutely everybody in the camp? And so too, the uplifted Jesus the enfleshed Son of God who was uplifted on a cross, what he did is enough for absolutely everybody's sin to be atoned for. And do you realize this? Think about it. Those who were bitten by poisonous snakes in Number Numbers 21, could you please tell me what they can do on behalf of themselves? Bitten by a poisonous snake, the toxins are flowing through their bloodstream, would have handicapped and disabled them from doing anything on their behalf. They would not even have had enough strength to crawl to a priest who maybe could intercede for them. They surely wouldn't have had the strength to make their way to the tent of meeting, the tabernacle in the wilderness. And there is no way that they could have offered to God a sacrifice of any kind. They've been bitten, and they're dying. They could do nothing, Nothing, nothing to deal with the effects of the bites. Do you realize it's true of us as well? We who have been bitten by sin and who hasn't. Not a one of us bitten by sin can do a thing about it. Do you know that? Not a thing about it. Except what they did in Numbers 21. In faith, they looked and they lived they looked up to God's provided remedy on a pole. Even so, John 3.16 says, the love of God has been manifest to all people groups in the world. Look and live to a crucified Jesus, uplifted on a cross. Look with the eyes of faith, see him impaled, pierced through in our place. Look with the eyes of faith, and live on, survive the poisonous toxic bites of our own sin coursing through every fiber of our being, being, look up to the crucified Jesus, and live. Nothing is different, and that's why John says, as it was in Numbers 21, even so, God loved the world. In fact, this unusual provision for sin in Numbers 21, I think, was made that way by God, by the Lord Jesus, so that you and I, thousands of years removed from it, could look back on it and see how even in ancient days, the Son of God, the perfect remedy for sin, was giving us clues and cues and foreshadowings for His ultimate manifestation of love on a cross the ultimate remedy for our sin. As you read that unusual event in Numbers 21, it all makes sense when it leads you to the cross. And you say, "Almighty oh, God, you didn't just wake up and have a good night's sleep and have a good day. It's not that you're in a good mood and therefore you're providing for my sin. Oh, no, you planned this from before time because you saw me coming, someone bitten by sin, helpless and unable even to crawl to the throne of grace. All I can do is what you've asked me to do. Look up to a crucified Savior and live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I was a new Christian in the service many years ago. And a Christian group, musical group, came to where we were stationed to do a concert concert. I was invited by some of the guys as a new Christian to go to this concert. And I remember hearing the song uh, sung by a fellow named Barry McGuire. <laughs> you know, Stephan, you know who I'm talking about? You're as old as I am, I guess, huh? And he sang this song, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And I'll never forget it. It has helped me through all kinds of stuff. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, it says. Look full. In his wonderful face, what happens? The things of earth will grow strangely dim. How? In the light of his two G words, glory and grace. It so affected me, I kind of made it a theme for my life. In fact, I told my wife, if I die before her, I want that sung at my funeral. Yeah, I gave her orders. I want it sung at my funeral. So if we go together and you show up at my funeral, and you're all invited, Uh, Make sure that song is sung, okay? doesn't matter who sings it. Just get anybody to sing it. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory. So, Lord Jesus, thank you. We who have looked and now live eternally are eternally grateful. And our hearts yearn for more to get in on your inexpressible gift, the remedy for our number one problem, sin, which has separated us from you, giver of life. And so I pray, as only you can, you would stir up the hearts and minds of some here tonight, just as you did last week, to realize their separation and apartness from you and the provision you've made to resolve that problem. You being the bridge between a sinful person and a holy God. Thank you for the sufficiency and totality of what you've done in being lifted up on a cross on our behalf. We don't have to add to it. There's nothing better than it. There's nothing we could offer, for we're hopelessly bitten and paralyzed by the effects of our own sin. Sin bearer, Lord Jesus, would you bear the sins of the ones here tonight who have yet to say, come into my sin sick life. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Thank you that my sin has been judged in your nail-pierced crucified body. Thank you for winning victory over death that I might live. You have risen up from death and I could follow suit if only I look and live. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive me Put me into your forever family. Change me from the inside out. Make me to be like John DeLoach and others who are so excited about being redeemed that they tell others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for planning our salvation even from before time and perish the thought that we would ignore the remedy to keep us from perishing eternally. No, instead... We would rather experience eternal life, the life that you, eternal God, experience, free of all the effects, repercussions, and implications of sin, all the stuff that hurts us and harms us and causes us pain and dysfunction and disenfranchisement. Oh, God, come into the life of the one, the two, or the more, here tonight, who look upon you, crucified on a cross, and realize you did it for them. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.